Hey guys, welcome back to the Life Well Done podcast. Before I introduce today's podcast guest, um, I'd, I'd like to request, please, please subscribe, like, share, leave a comment on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this so we can get this information out to as many people as possible. Um, it's awesome to see some, some people giving me responses to all these things, and I truly enjoy talking to all of our guests. So with that being said, if there are people that you would like to talk to or some kind of topic that you would like me to talk about, please also let me know. Uh, so getting into today's guest, uh, Tara Miller. She's a psychotherapist uh, up in Canada. Um, I've heard her talk several times now, and every time I, I feel like I learn something more, she draws me deeper into um, the mindset uh, aspect of life. And, and Tara, being a psychotherapist, has a great way of practicing. It's called SRT. Um, what this really is about is not so much traditional therapy of talking and reliving things, but to regulate nervous system. And she's going to dive down this whole, uh, this rabbit hole so deep. It's awesome. Uh, it, what a great episode this was for me. Um, with that being said, if you have ever thought about going to therapy, you're in therapy, you want to return to therapy, you're a therapist yourself, this will be at least a way to challenge your belief or maybe how you're practicing and potentially a way to give back to your your current or future uh, clients and patients. So um, if and when you do listen to this, please give me some feedback. I'd love to hear and talk about this with some more people. Um, share it wherever you can. And uh, yeah, let me know. Enjoy the episode. So here we are, uh, Tara Miller. Um, I'm not even going to introduce you. I'm just going to let you take it away. Tell us about how you got to where you are, what you do, where you're from. Um, I'm so freaking stoked about this right now. <laughs> Awesome. So I'm a practicing psychotherapist here in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. Um, so I've worked in private practice just for the last eight to 10 years, uh, doing the kind of work that I do, which is a very specific neuroscience based modality called self-regulation therapy that was developed up here in Canada. And I've helped with teaching other therapists how to do this. I've had some one research uh, case study published, but mostly I developed this passion for helping people change their brains, become more resilient, to get more of what they want out of life, and really go against the grain of traditional talk therapy and a lot of the mainstream psychotherapy that's out there. Um, and so that's kind of how I got, or what I do now, how I got here was a long and windy journey like what most people uh, have in their backstory. I never wanted to be a helper or to work with people. I didn't even know if I liked people that much. I didn't know if I cared <laughs> about people enough to do this kind of work. And what I realized, you know, through my own journey and my own trauma and my own experiences coming to this place was that I really care about people, not in their, not in the empathy state of where they're hurting. I really care about getting people to the next place that they deserve to be, which is in a state of resilience and health um, and knowing how to create and keep that for the rest of their lives. Oh, man, uh, that's, that's, this is awesome. Um, I have already have so many questions, but um, so just like a little bit of backstory from here, kind of talk to you about this, but um, maybe my, I, I took a brief hiatus from podcasting for a little bit and, um, and I'm back into it, finding, kind of finding my groove and where I fit. But I'm also, so I'm in the strength conditioning community, been doing that for about a decade, maybe a little bit more in our school, these things. 
but I've always kind of thought about the therapy side of things. I myself had some head injuries, started diving into that, finding out that even earlier in my life, struggle with probably, you know, put it on the umbrella of mental illness, anxiety, depression. Um, people that have listened to this podcast from the beginning um, have seen it go make several facelifts already, only in, I forget how many episodes, maybe 40 episodes at this point. Um, but it started out with mental health. Uh, it's what I was going through at the time, suicide, pill addiction, just kind of really struggling with self-identity and self-esteem, all these things, which improved greatly, obviously. Here's smiling. We're all good. Um, yeah. But there's still all these things about, you know, um, imposter syndrome, all these things that come up. In my mm-hmm. experience with um, so much of therapy, other than particularly one therapist that's really been great for me, is talk therapy. And although it's been beneficial in some ways, I've always sat there and thought, hmm, I don't know. And it's also spurred me into the recognizing that I really love connecting with people more than I love teaching the squat, which I do love. I love yeah. programming, all these things. But it's human connection of like, great, where are you at? If you're a negative 10, I don't really care about getting you to 10. I care about getting you to negative nine. And I see it as optimization rather than you're in mental illness care or whatever they may call mm-hmm. it at that point. And so I'm kind of going down this road of entertaining strongly. Um, the idea of going back to school, despite some struggles there, into sport and performance psychology. Continual optimization, but keeping that therapy. And I've, you know, in my past, people look, you'd be a great therapist. To me, some of it's boring. I don't want to sit there all day and listen to you talk about this, this, and this without, and then just be like, okay, I feel better. What I want is how do we actually put work into this thing and make this happen? You said stuff about different states of empathy, different kind of viewpoints of it. Resilience is a huge word for you. Um, And then the nervous system. But before we do that, I found yesterday, I haven't read it. I've been on your website before. You have an ebook. I do. About resiliency. Do okay. Can you talk about how you did that? Like, what, what's involved with that? Like, writing that, and what made you write it? Well, it started with just putting out content, realizing that my viewpoint and how I practice and how I was working seemed really different from what even the people I went to school with had been trained in, and wanting to put that put something different out there realizing that the results that i had in my own life and the results i was seeing in my clients was far beyond what i was seeing in any other research in any other um practitioners um you know when we do case collaborations so the results were so profound that i i wanted to put out more information to educate people about a different way of thinking and and about taking what we know about how the brain can change and using that in therapy so that people aren't stuck in therapy for life if they don't want to be that there's it's it's a, a place where you can launch out of and you don't have to have it forever so it came out of the content that i was putting out on just my clinical practice website um and some of it was was received favorably and and there was even backlash from other therapists that you know this wasn't the way that they were trained and what they do and they didn't appreciate it um and that actually propelled me to write more because anytime somebody gives me pushback that i want to push back harder um so it came out of that content and it and it was just a way to give people um an easy accessible download and when people came into my practice they would download it and get a ton of psychoeducation just from going through that and have a really good grasp of how this work was going to be different so 
it is about those kind of early stages in my practice, building a platform, putting some information out there um, that was a little bit different. So people could have a different perspective on, and on therapy in general, but also the potential for their own lives. That's so cool. I think, uh, so I've listened to you talk a couple of times on different shows and um, I think that's probably what stuck out most to me was just that I don't even like the word different. I just like that it's, it's a progressive um, practice, really. It's not, I don't think that it didn't come across to me and we'll get into this. Hopefully it didn't come across to me as you dismiss what CBT or, you know, behavioral therapy is talk therapy is it's a matter of like, how do we utilize this thing to be a little bit more beneficial? It's like, we don't want to just sit here and park or spin the tires and, and relive everything. We want to say, well, what are we going to do with all this information? Um, and so to me like that right, right away, it was like this just light turned on because uh, you know, like, you mentioned something just a minute ago about like, if you want to work with me for 10 years, awesome. And that's how I train all my clients, teams. Like, mm -hmm. Listen, if you, if I'm working with you for a decade, it's because you want to, but my job is to teach you how to become autonomous with all these things. Now, if you yeah. need to touch up here and there, like come back, it's not like I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. But mm -hmm. the idea is that like, I don't have to hold your hand the same way. I don't want my help, my hand held all the time. I want enough information, try it, come back figure it out and we keep moving forward. So um, just some, uh, I guess we'll just start diving some of these questions that I have and see where this goes. Um, nervous system training and, and preparation. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things that I'm, uh, I would love to learn about is just number one, the ways we can train it. Um, but like if we're, you know, I know you've got a little bit of experience with military, at least to my knowledge, or I'm sure we can just talk about it in military because it's easy. It's low hanging fruit examples to me, but yeah. um you take like a SEALs team or the special forces and they know that they're going in something like buds or, you know, whatever they have to do to become, they have to become this thing. Is there a yeah. way to pre prepare our minds for what we're about to come into? You know, there's a tough time ahead. Is there a way to really prepare the nervous system and, and the nervous system? I hope we're going to dive into a ton here. Yeah. I mean, the nervous system is really the mind and body connected they're not separated like we used to think that they might be everything is a constant feedback loop so every thought we have has a corresponding physiological response we just work in such a way and we're moving through life so quickly that we're not connecting to every um, physiological or felt experience that we're having from every thought but everything is really interconnected and so balancing or regulating or optimizing the nervous system is about creating a baseline that is calm and supported and confident and really healthy so that you have room to have experience that you have room to have tolerance of uncomfortable experiences so that you have room to experience trauma even and then recover from it so it is the baseline and really that foundation of resilience where you can have an experience, you can tolerate it, you can have the fullest expression of something positive or negative, but you can always come back to a healthy baseline. And so people that are able to optimize, that are able to go through some of the challenges that are happening right now in the world, typically have that ability either through training or that they have um, a, a giftedness of a really robust nervous system 
to experience some of what's going on, the challenges of the unknown, the challenges that a lot of people are facing during this time of events of life, and they're able to roll through it. It's, it can be uncomfortable. It's not like they don't have negative experiences or negative emotions, but it's a flow, right? It's not a flat line of feeling nothing where you feel like you're in control of everything. It's an understanding of this is how life goes. And I can handle up here and the joys of it, and I can handle down here in the lows of it, but I can always know how to come back to this place. So when we talk about optimizing the nervous system, that's what I'm most interested in, is what's impacting the nervous system, how is it responding, and how can we get it to respond better, which is a lot clearer of a path for me to health than talking about experiences that just keep us in one state or the other. It's the flow of it, the ability to move through it. And so it's very much like exercise. When we talk about strength and conditioning and why I love and promote exercise so much is it's so aligned with the gains that you make in the gym, the things that you do through the discipline and the training and that process of building muscle and strength. It's really the same for the brain. It's just a different avenue. Interesting. So... Would you be able to increase, like, are you like, uh, let's say, if you have a baseline of I can run a mile at seven minutes, mm-hmm. and you can increase that to running a mile at six minutes. Is there a way to increase that baseline of that nervous system to be more resilient in 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 certain circumstances? Yeah, I mean, what the sessions with SRT are about are it was initially created to help remove the impact of traumatic experience, get the the nervous system out of that sympathetic arousal, because what happens is people get stuck in fight, flight or freeze, which charges up and burns out all your systems and your organs and everything. Um, It causes that chronic stress pathway. So what SRT was created to do was really to help people discharge all of that extra energy, come out of those stuck pathways and come come back down to learn what that baseline feels like. And then from there, the training in those sessions is what's happening in somebody's life. They're going to come up and they're going to be activated about things. And we're teaching the nervous system how to come into parasympathetic. And we just keep repeating it until it's a new pathway in the brain. So really we're building new neural pathways through that really what's the equivalent of building new brain habits. So that in session is how we train and teach the brain how to come to a new baseline so that it remembers how to go there and it starts to default to go back there. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Um, so essentially you could say like it's, it's empty the cup to fill the cup back up and, and create that bandwidth just to Yep. And then you expand with that. So it's never just about, I just, you know, getting to a place where you're surviving better. It's really about a place of we're going to work through whatever traumas or whatever stuck in your container, filling it up, getting in the way, create this baseline, teach your brain how to come back to it whenever you need to. But also it's about expansion. So therapy shouldn't end when you have an absence of symptoms. Therapy should end when you feel like you are have expanded enough, like breathing, that you can take the fullest breath of your life and come back without needing my help anymore. That's oh, the goal. Man. I love that. That's so cool. Um, so and that's why talking- I don't have I don't have clients for ten years. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't, but you probably have clients for ten years because they keep referring others to you. Like, oh right. shit, this was quick. This worked. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's awesome. Um, as far as stress and trauma go, mm-hmm. are they one and the same? And we're talking about like you stress, this stress. 
exercise being like a you stress, a good stress. Um, it's, it's probably, as far as my understanding, is probably the best way to get the nervous system to adjust, I don't know, for lack of better terms. But yeah. stress and trauma, everybody's got stress and trauma. And the body yeah. sees, I mean, my again, my knowledge is that stress is just stress. Maybe the response is different, but stress is stress. Are stress and trauma one and the same, or can they be talked about in the same, or is it yeah, they can, at that point? They can be one and the same, but really when we're looking at the nervous system, anything that overwhelms the nervous system can be considered trauma. So okay. anything that puts you into a sympathetic arousal where you are encouraged on a biological level to fight, flight, freeze, and you have that, that impulse to act to save your life, whether it's from chronic stress or from imaginary stress or from past traumatic memories or from an actual current trauma, if in your system it doesn't have a sense that it has the ability to cope because something's too much or too soon or too fast or you lack the resources, it will be interpreted as trauma. Your nervous system will respond as if it's a trauma to anything. And then what we do is we can condition ourselves to respond to everything as a trauma. So something that hasn't even happened, we can have a traumatic response from because really we're training the brain one way or we're training in the brain the other way. So if we don't train it in a way of resilience with the right perceptions about stress to go with it, the brain will automatically default to the negative bias of what do I need to do to save my life, whether it's real or not. Okay. I got to organize <laughs> my thoughts on this. I got a lot of questions and I want to forget them. That's, that is, uh, okay. So you said something that made me think about vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. So other people's nervous systems or traumas, can they impact you come, you come home and you're like, this hap this trauma happened to me, X happened. I'm Y. <laughs> and does that affect my nervous system? Can it affect my nervous system? It absolutely 100% does. <laughs> Okay. So, because our nervous systems are, we're contagious. So it's really one of the biggest teachings in the work that we do is what are you coming home to and what are you surrounding yourself with because we template off of one another. So our nervous systems develop from the template of our mother or, or primary caregiver, but it's typically the mother. So however, however healthy mom was, however responsive she was to our needs, right from second trimester out really. Um, that is how, what laid the foundation for our own resiliency because we templated off of her, typically her. And so then as life goes on, events happen that test our resiliency and how we respond in the support that we get and the resources that we have growing up, then we'll determine if we come out of that with more resiliency or if we come out of that with more deficiency. So that still happens in adult life and we just forget that. We know how important parenting is zero to five, zero to 10. Frontal lobes come online around um, and really start to wire up around 10. But we don't think about typically how it is as adults. And what happens as adults is we recapitulate the patterns that we had in our early childhood. So we often have relationships that are familiar. It's like, oh, I've known you my whole life. That might not be a great thing, but it's familiar. So we're attracted to familiar because it takes less energy in the brain. It seems safe. Doesn't mean it is safe. So the awareness of some of those things from, from talk therapy, 
serves a purpose, not just to talk about it, but to have the awareness of this is what I'm attracting in my life um, because it's familiar. But I can also be aware that when I'm around these people, this is what it feels like in my body. This is what I notice in my thoughts or my energy. And it's either positive or negative. And then I have to actually make decisions. So this is the thinking and the behavior part. I have to make decisions around how do I want my nervous system to grow? Uh, because it's more than just about the five people you spend time with. You do become more like them, but it's not as conscious as people think. It's really this unconscious templating we do, bouncing off of one another. High traumatic situations. That's why there's so much burnout in the medical community, in military, in um, psychotherapists and social workers, because you're, you're spending time with trauma and traumatic imprints on people's nervous systems on an unconscious level as well as the conscious level all day long holy smokes uh <laughs> you need to just be like a university course in itself here um <laughs> so in sharing that the nervous system and the traumas back and forth it's genetic it's based on the caregiver but generally the mother since it's being carried mm -hmm. from you said second trimester correct uh, there is at 30 years old, I come to you. Are we managing or are we, I mean, maybe I'm asking this for like the third time now, but is there an, a way to optimize that response of the nervous system? So that way, like, you know, I don't know if this even draws parallels to like your, your, you know, abused as a kid and you tend to see like that. I don't know what stats are, but it seems that like, uh, children that are abused tend to be abusers when they become adults. Mm -hmm. Um, is that running parallel to the thought process and can that be coached out? You're, we're talking about a little bit of neuroplasticity and being able to change <clears throat> the, the brain's way of navigating essentially. And if so, I imagine that, I hope it can be. Um, but what in, in let, using that example, how do you attack that <laughs> for back a letter to lack of better terms here? I mean, everybody's going to come with their stuff, right? So I always, I mean, everybody kind of has their bag of shit that they're carrying through their life. <laughs> you bring awareness to it. And a lot of people just stay in the awareness of it. And it becomes their story that creates their identity, not just how it created, but they use it to continue to keep that same identity. And that's not helpful. So you can train it out. You have the awareness of it, of the things that are developmental. We don't want to go back into development. We don't want to go back and, and, and really reparent or revisit from the early developmental times because going back to that time of life, you didn't have a lot of resources. We're pretty helpless when we're children. So it puts us into a really disempowered state. There's ways that we can work with specific traumatic events from early childhood, but we never start there. Uh, and we never go back and do a gold mining expedition for all the terrible things that have happened to somebody's life or make a list of, of all the traumas that they've been through. It's not necessary, but it's also super overwhelming and counterproductive in a lot of ways. So we always start with where the person is in this moment. What resources, what strengths do they have that has allowed them to survive everything that's happened into their life? thus far and everybody has something but to start therapy with resource building which is what how did you survive this already what about you is so um helpful or strong or resilient in your life or your psyche already that it's allowed you to come to this place 
of strengthened and, and survival now. So we start with that and then we just build it and expand on it. Interesting. Oh man. Okay. Um, <laughs> God, I got to figure out how I want to do this here. Um, in building off of that, I'll use myself as an example here. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty open person, at least to a point as I'm finding out. Um, mm -hmm. I sit there and sit, uh, thinking about <clears throat> lack, low self-esteem, um, struggle with the belief in self or always fearing not being good enough. That's my trigger from a young age. I've always wondered, am I not good enough? Am I not good enough? Yeah. I was uh, called fat in first grade. And to this day, I still describe myself as a short, fat, bald kid. Uh, for the record, I'm, I'm not really that fat. I'm a little fluffy, but like I'm other than being bald, I'm, I'm average, that. right? So <laughs> there's, there's all these things you, you mentioned, like you create yeah. this identity through maybe some conditioning, some patterning, mm -hmm. whether it be yeah. from familiar, you know, family from, friendship or it's just your own one thing happens you you interpret it and then the story like that and you just run with it so you start yeah. digging these grooves for me uh i operate out of lack never enough money never enough this mm -hmm. i don't have i've been doing this for a decade but i'm not still need this this and this to be considered an expert or whatever it might be you know yeah. i always kind of looked at it as like you live through it you're probably more expert than nobody that's ever lived through it so mm -hmm. there's something to stand on there but I guess in doing that, part of my question is about what thoughts really are. Do thoughts really become things? The affirmations, the self-talk, the visualization, all the woo-woo stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I want to become a millionaire. Well, you have to put yourself in that seat first and stuff like that. Or how do you view yourself? I see myself now as I am proud. I am confident. I am all these positive affirmations, I guess is probably what they're used as buzzwords now mm -hmm. and navigating those waters to get to something I've heard you talk about of trusting your gut. And my question is always about how, how do you know what your gut is and what yeah. your gut isn't through <clears throat> all of those things I just said? <laughs> yeah. I mean, trusting your gut. So I always say a few things and I don't like to say always and never, but I, of, I often say these things. Actually, I always say these things. Don't believe everything you think uh, because that is, there's so much of our conditioning that has an unconscious drive. So it's important to know that what we think is coming from a filter of where our activation is in this moment in time, what our upbringing has been, where we grew up, what our culture is, what our gender or our sex is. like everything is it, nothing's real like it, i always feel like this is a matrix game really but if i accept that for my own brain it actually makes it easier for me to manipulate my own brain to start growing in the way that i want it to because it's just an experiment it's just an experiment in the matrix i can't believe every thought that i think especially if i'm under stress i can't act on every feeling i have especially if i'm under stress or if i haven't learned how to regulate my nervous system and when it comes to your gut, your gut has the most wisdom out of all of it, but you can't trust your gut if you're dysregulated either. So really, until you learn how to regulate, which is why I say it's so foundational, I don't think you can trust much of what you um, perceive your environment or your experience to be. And people will say, well, this is my truth, which I hate the phrase because everything is our truth. Whatever I think in this moment happens to be my truth. It might not be true or healthy. So I'm always looking at what's most true and what's really healthy and what's going to take me into becoming 
whoever I want to be. So that idea of I'm going to learn how to regulate my nervous system. When I know what being regulated feels like, then I can trust my gut. And there's different exercises we can do in therapy that help people really reconnect with their gut because sometimes it goes offline if there's been trauma, especially if somebody had an instinct to, to run away and they didn't and then something bad happened, that can be disconnected. So there's little tricks that we can do in session to help people reconnect with their gut, but really you're more clear on your gut when you learn how to be self-regulated, when you learn practices and you go through the session work to come to a, a baseline, that's where you feel confident because you really feel supported and solid in who you are right down to the core without the noise of who somebody told you you were, or who you thought that you were. And from there, you can use that templating feature to really create an identity of who you want to be more like. So we can use um, books and characters and movies and other people in our life that we like how they handle things or we like who they are in a certain area. If we spend time imagining their energy or how they handle things, if we spend time with them, if we spend time immersed in the content of that, that mirroring that we do starts to happen in our own brain. Our brain can start to organize around the stuff that we're filling it with around self-created identity. So in a way, whoever I was up to this point, I can decide what to keep and I can decide what to leave. I don't have to be anchored to anything that's ever happened to me or that I've been through if I don't choose to. And then I look at who I actually want to be. So there is some of that, you know, you have to be the, you have to have the millionaire energy before you can be the millionaire. I haven't, I, I, I work on that and, but I'm not a millionaire yet. So I can't say that it works or not, but I can say you probably have a better chance of, of being the person that gets what they want if you think and pretend to be the person that gets what they want. If you immerse yourself around people that have that energy, hold that space, have that level of health, that level of belief, all of that is going to be positive for you. Whether you get the millions or not, I don't know yet. Sure. So it's all based on a, the level in which you are your nervous system is activated. We're like, we've got to get you into an active spot. One of the worst things that I'm, I'm a pretty anxious person. That's something I've improved, I think, but I mean, it's still one of those things that I just, I overthink everything and I'm like, Oh my God. Uh, but I, one of the worst phrases is trust your gut. I don't know what the fuck my gut's saying to me right now. Uh, right. My gut's telling me to throw up and run away or my yeah. gut's telling me, that I don't have enough information or my gut, you know, because the gut's confused by, by the brain, which is why talk therapy and the CBT stuff isn't always effective because adding more information can just add activation. Information isn't always soothing. I, I've noticed in times like this, we're looking to the news for um, soothing. Um, the news gave us activation, so we're looking to the news for soothing, and we're just getting more information that's adding more activation. So it's counterproductive, but we're addicted to it because our, we have to understand that our, our reptilian mind, our survival brain is, scale, is um, surveilling the land all the time. It never rests for threat, and if we can't see it, we start to overthink because we're looking for it. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like the... <laughs> like the internet where that would make us all smarter, but there's just too much shit out there now. <laughs> That's exactly what the news is about COVID right now. Right? Like, 
you got an expert saying one thing and an expert saying the complete opposite. You're, like, you're both the same expert. What do we do with this? So, and then everybody uh, with the high school education is saying that they're more of an expert on this side with these experts than these guys with these experts. And now everybody's an expert and nobody knows what's going on. Oh my gosh. I, I don't, I don't know what to think about any of it anymore, but um, so you are saying that the, the woo woo side of things, there's something to it. It's, um, but real, the reality of it is like really just continually trying to recreate a roadmap inside of your own mind and thoughts yeah. to becoming that person. So if we can get you into the ideal active state of the nervous system, and then you can raise that activity to being the millionaire or the person, the hero you want to be and how they carry themselves. The subconscious would probably take care of that in, in terms of like, it would be living it almost in real life. And so that's where that like the matrix side of things comes from. It makes it easier. If you're feeding yourself the right information in your mind, it makes everything else easier. Uh, the overthinking is just an attempt to find a solution because up until this point, there hasn't been a solution that has worked or that it's been aware of. And the woo-woo side of it is important though, because you every thought that you think, your entire nervous system responds to. Every memory that you have, it responds to. Every visualization in the future, it responds to. So there's a decision to be made about how you want, like how this is a place that you can control. Um, and your nervous system will respond to it. So I always say, if somebody's had a diagnosis, don't ever accept it as part of who you are. Um, so if I have a client that says, because of my anxiety, because of my depression, because of my PTSD, because of my ADHD, as soon as you say my, you're telling your unconscious mind to give you more of that. And the more you talk about it, the more you tell your unconscious brain, this is important, give me more of it. So we create these loops of giving us what we don't want by focusing, even though we're trying to fix it, it's the best of intentions, but we're really communicating in a way that the unconscious brain, which is so rudimentary, doesn't understand. It's like, this is what you're focused on, so I'm just going to give you more of it because it seems like it's important. It doesn't understand the dialogue that we're having up here on this part of our brain. It only understands kind of what it's being fed. So when it comes to thoughts, emotions, perceptions, it's not about what you believe about yourself. It's really more important what you tell yourself. So if I feel, because anxiety is normal, everybody has it. If I feel anxious, I never say I'm having anxiety. I always will say, I feel a little activated today because it's depersonalized. It's something that I'm experiencing, but it's not part of who I am and it's normal. And I can learn how to kind of regulate through it. Oh, I need to go for a walk. Oh, I need to take a break. Oh, I need to meditate. Oh, I need to have whatever action things I need to do, or I need a therapy session, but I, I won't own it. I won't own that I feel depressed or anxious, or I'll say I'm feeling activated today. I feel a little off, but it's always not about me. It's about my nervous system having an experience that has nothing to do with my identity. And it's a, such a healthier way and a quicker way to move through it. It's just a temporary thing and I move through it and I don't tell my unconscious mind that it's part of who we are and to give me more of it. So the ownership side of things, the, the language in, in showing that ownership matters so much more than like what's actually a real for lack of, you know, I don't know, better, not great description, but yeah. Interesting. So the, oh man, I got a lot of work to do. Language uh, is so important. <laughs> Language is more important than we think because we're communicating with 
so much in our mind and our body that we're not aware of. Interesting. So I got to cross this out. I'm reading the same thing. There's, there's a second thing. All right. So the first thing with that, is there a difference between men and women? Mm. And then on top of that, in a subcategory of that, I would consider myself, um, you know, like some people are like, well, I'm an alpha male or I'm a beta male. I think I show a decent range. Uh, I think sometimes I'm probably more, more in touch with the feminine side of things. But then, like, I joke that, like, when Alpha Brian comes out, just everybody get the fuck out of the way because it's not good for anybody, including me. Um, so maybe there's a regulation issue there. But men and women, and then you've got the subcategories of, like, some, some men are just not willing to go into the vulnerability or mm-hmm. the sensitive side of things, the feminine side of things, versus they stay masculine, and vice versa for the women. Some women don't want to go into the, they're more masculine, whatever. Is there a difference in treatment? Is there a difference in... I don't even know what the real question is. Is there a difference? There, well, there is. I mean, there's been, there's been research that's come out that said, you know, different parts of the brain have more activity or are smaller or bigger in, in men and women. Um, Dr. Daniel Amen has a book on the female brain, which was, I found really insightful. The biggest differences are the, the hormone um, differences between men and women. And um, the endocrine system in general feeds so much about our activation or our regulation that hormone balance is so important for mental health and it often gets overlooked or a lot of therapists. I mean, I ask everybody for labs. I, I ask them to go get some functional medicine labs so that we know that we're not dealing with something biological versus something <clears throat> psychological. I want to treat um, you know, the right thing and leave other things to the experts. So if somebody's hormones are off, if their sleep is off, if their lifestyle is um, adding inflammation, I can help, but there's going to be a limit because I need the other pieces of it. So I want to work with a whole person that is really, um, everything is, is working together in, in a healthy way. So there are differences in that. And there's cultural differences in conditioning. And um, it's not, not anything I've research, but I can see patterns in my clients. The clients that I work with that are um, male, that are typically more type A, kind of more entrepreneurial, they tend to get um, better, faster, stronger, um, quicker. They respond to the science of this they can tap into a little bit of vulnerability or enough of it, but really they're like, I just want to change my brain and move forward and, and just, let's just do this. So they dig in and they invest and they get the connection um, and they get the vulnerability in, in appropriate dosages, but they don't tend to dip in so much. And then they launch out and go live their lives and tell me that they're wildly successful, which is fantastic. In fact, they all make more money after they've done the work, which is even better. The women... <laughs> The women, on the other hand, so I, I'm doing a lot of consulting with entrepreneurs because it's, it's more like sprint sessions. We do shorter sessions that are performance-based, like you would do with an athlete. I love working with athletes also. You condition the mind, you condition the nervous system so they can do what they need to do, and then you teach them how to recover. So it's very much like training, and it's, it's, um, it's actually a lot of fun to do that work. A lot of the women I worked with, women are have a different biochemistry too that is looking more for connection. And I think that's why talk therapy became so popular. When I went to grad school, they said, 
it doesn't matter what modality you use, 80% of people will get better just because of the connection. And I thought, what a crock of shit that is, because <laughs> then why would you pay somebody if you just need connection, you could just go to your friend. Or you could just tell the story and you would get to the end of it and it would be over. What about all the science of the nervous system? So luckily I did this training for SRT while I was in grad school. So I, I was raging against the machine while I was still in the machine. Um, and somehow had some, had some converts as I came out of that. But I don't, I don't buy into that. I know that that's a very popular thing. But, you know, I think for a lot of women, I've had clients that have come to me that said, I really liked my therapist. I saw her for six years every week. But I got to a place where I just wasn't getting any better. And I still am on medication for anxiety or depression. And I'm still dealing with this. Or these things are actually worse. So you bring in the science, they get better in 10 sessions, and they can't believe that that wasn't available in the relationship that they had before, where it was just about connection. But they typically want to stay longer in the therapeutic process, and I see more self-sabotage because they don't want to lose the connection. Because we, when we're working with the nervous system, it's right brain to right brain, so people feel seen in a different way than just if we're having a relationship they feel like i can see the inside of their brain that there's a knowing that there's a trust and for a lot of them it's the only hour that they ever get that's just about themselves and they don't want to give that up and so there's a real caution especially with women but also with some men that there's a codependency factor there the goal is, and right from the beginning, the goal is to make you the best, strongest version of yourself. And we're going to connect here. And this is going to be really remarkable work. But the goal is that just like with how I'm raising my kids, the goal is that I launch you into the world and you are independent and successful without me. And what I found with women is they want the connection longer. They want to linger longer. Sometimes they sabotage success so that they can stay in it which I don't really allow. We work on that. But it, there is a difference in practice in my experience. That's really, that's funny. I, I feel like I'm like the asshole that's in the middle of everything where I'm like, I, I come in and I'm like, can we just, I, I want this fixed. I want it fixed yesterday. Just give me, literally tell me step-by-step step, bullet point. You know, when people start teaching me something. Oh, I get that I'm a lot. Like, hold, I'm like, hold on. I need one, two, three. Tell me I'm doing them right and launch me out here. But then there's also a part of me where I'm like, I don't know, I like talking. I like, and a lot of it's not even for me. It's more about, I just like learning. Like, this is how I learn. I need that connection. So let me, let my thoughts kind of go. Yeah. The therapist that I've had the most success with has, and I told you this, kind of in the middle of it, where yeah. there's times where he, he just looks at me and he could just tell something's up and I'll sit down he'll go, so what's been going on with you? Because something's, something's going. And I'm yep. like, ah, shit, there's a lot going on today. Or I'll say, I don't know what to talk about and then spiral in this. And it's funny because he'll give me my, he'll give me my little runway and I'll take off and he'll eventually just kind of go in the middle of my conversation, he'll stop and go, so where are you at right now? And I'll be like, fuck you. I got so much more to tell you. And he's like, it doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter. And I can only imagine he's kind of thinking about what you're thinking about where it's like, this story doesn't matter. It matters that you are worked up. And I need to, yeah. okay, how are you feeling? Where do you feel this in your body? Gut? Great. Let's just feel that for a second. And yeah. I think that's probably the nerve that was struck when I heard you talking the first time. So I was like, mm -hmm. that feels oddly familiar, just different language being used to describe it. 
Um, so I feel, I feel like I always feel like this. So I'm like the asshole in the middle where I'm like, I'm a little of that little of this, just, I feel like I'm the difficult client. Um, but okay. So I'm going to got that with that one. The yeah. memory thing. I've heard differing opinions or facts on this. It's like yeah. the expert to expert is memory real. It's well, it's been proven that it's completely inaccurate. So, and it depends developmentally when it happened. So it doesn't mean that the thing didn't happen, but we can be assured that the thing didn't happen how we remember, because depending on when it happened, if something happened to me at six, I remember I had a surgery uh, on my sixth birthday. What I remember about that is through the lens of a high sympathetic arousal for emergency surgery in a six-year-old brain. So the brain isn't even, it's barely developed. So what I remember, the surgery happened. I mean, I have proof of it. I have a nice scar from it, but did it happen how I remember? It's fragmented, it's through a filter. And every time you go retrieve a memory, it changes. And then it changes as you put it back. So it's evolving and false most of the time. It doesn't mean the event doesn't happen. We have data to support that the event happened. Um, the emotions that go with it will change depending on how we pull it up. But it's not accurate in the way that is meaningful for us to have future growth. Interesting. So I, I mean, like to me, my head goes right into like the court of law. It goes into like, just look at my, my little nephew, like we'll be doing something and then he'll say something like, that's not at all what, I mean, kids, mm -hmm. so you just chalk it up like, ah, kids. But it's interesting because I start thinking about like witnesses and, and everything like that. And you're like, well, it wasn't that you were, I don't want to use the example of raped, but raped, I don't know, uh, abused. But like, then the story starts to change and you're always like, well, how does the story change? And now that you start to understand, like, you can't possibly retrieve, I, mean, I guess, is, is a photographic memory a real thing? And is that the only, like, um, that I don't caveat? know. I, I mean, I know that there's, uh, in the, in some of the training, they were sharing stories of and talking about this concept. And um, one woman, and, and the other thing is therapists can do damage because they help people try and recreate a memory. It's really irrelevant to recreate it. It doesn't help you to know all the details and it usually just causes more activation and dissociation. But there's, there was a case that uh, one therapist uh, worked on where this person was convinced and had been, um, had helped the memory be put together from another therapist on um, like a satanic ritual abuse kind of a situation when they, it didn't sit quite right with the, with the therapist. Cause you have this intuition, like your therapist sounds like he's got that intuition when they looked further into medical records and kind of did a deeper dive to do some fact finding. She had had an emergency surgery that was a gynecological procedure that was at a time of development when, um, you know, the brain wasn't fully developed. But what she saw of people hovering over her was actually surgeons. What she saw with the lights and the pain was actually part of a, a legitimate, um, appropriate surgical procedure. But with what was going on with her and her nervous system at the time and the fight flight response and how we kind of check out of situations, it was imprinted as a foggy memory that somebody helped her recreate as something that it completely was not. So there are those examples that we hear of. Um, and then there's examples like when, when I had a car accident, I said, oh, it was a maroon colored minivan. It wasn't at all. And, and other witnesses had different, but if you ask 10 people who witnessed an accident, same event happened. The event did happen, but they all have a different filter that, 
you know, picks it up differently. So if you're activated at the time, if your resilience is compromised at the time of an event, your memory and your recall of it is really going to be skewed. There we go back to the nervous system and its activation level. That's interesting, man. Because you're, you don't learn when you're activated, you don't learn optimally. You don't remember optimally your frontal lobe, your executive function. All of that is really not getting the resources from your brain uh, because your resources are going to fight, flight, or free freeze to preserve survival. So your blood flow is different. Um, your hormone levels are different. The, the levels of connectivity in your brain are different. So it's why when we're under stress, we don't learn as well. We don't remember things the same. We don't um, have stable emotions because everything rests on your survival system, feeling like we don't need to do anything to survive right now. And if you're not related, you're always looking to survive. Interesting. So, all right. So I started a anatomy masters in for a lot of reasons, it didn't work out for me, but I, I love the program. And I'm going to try and relate this, this whole thing to athletes here for a second. Yeah. Um, in there, it was, we used, the, the theory there was that at any point, the teacher may just call on you and you're going to teach or you're going to do this or that. And, and the idea is that we want the emotional arousal to be there. So that way, even if you're wrong, you learn, like it's something you will, it will, It'll be trauma, essentially, um, for you to kind of remember. So I'm thinking about this in athletes and trauma and like a team interaction. And I think it's the inverted U theory of arousal or whatever. Maybe I don't know what it's actually called. Now the drive theory, whatever. But a certain level of arousal for performance, and you can relate this to academics or to sports, whatever, it doesn't matter. Is there a certain level of arousal, anxiety for uh, even that, is beneficial because we know that physiologically there's certain, you know, adrenaline's going to come out and, you know, you have different and uh, hormones are going to fluctuate differently. And I'm yeah. thinking back to like hockey or even as a strength coach, you, you get back squat, like, oh, let's rah, rah, right. And get everybody yeah. pumped up. I've also gone down the side of like, I'm going into heavy lift. I try to get into parasympathetic because I want the nervous system to be ready to roll when I need it to lift this heavy weight rather than so activated that I'm, I'm like in fucking outer space. So yeah. is there a level of arousal that is good? And then yeah, I just end the question there. Is there a level of arousal yeah. that we're really looking for? There is. And they've done research on this where they've shown that there's certain levels of, you know, we'll refer to it as anxiety for lack of a better word, but it's activation that actually make you perform better. So if you're going to do a speech on stage, and you don't feel anything, you feel like a super calm baseline, that's abnormal. That's, you've done this so many times that maybe you're numbed out to it. But what's optimal in when you perform best, and I was a dancer, so I remember this from getting ready to go on stage, you perform best when you have a like control level of, um, it, it feels like anxiety, but it's also excitement. But it's not debilitating. It's like a readiness. And when you learn about your nervous system, when you learn what it feels like to be really grounded and settled and parasympathetic and resourced, and then you learn how to explore the ranges of it, then you get a sense of for you, what is your pre-performance state that's a little more optimal. And it really is, it all comes from your body first. You get a sense of where it is. I mean, I always get 
a little shaky before I go on stage and talk. And I, I always hate it because it's like, ah, I don't want, like, I want to be a little more uh, grounded. It's really hard to ground when you wear heels, number one. So that's, that's a harder thing. Um, but I just accept it because I have perspective of it too, which is this is activation because I'm exposing myself in front of, um, you know, exposing my knowledge in front of 300 people. I'm supposed to feel a little fight or flighty because I'm going to be seen. And in the wild, if 300 people are circling me, I'm in trouble. So I can recognize it as being a biological function. I can put it in perspective and then I can go, okay, there's part of this that's going to make me go out there with the right energy. And this is because I care about this and I can handle it. And I also have done all this work that I know I can handle this. I'm not, you know, being circled by hungry hyenas. I'm just going to get up on stage and it gets different every time, but I've learned when it comes up and I know movement to do to help. And I know little tricks that work with my own body, but I don't want to extinguish it because it either means I don't care anymore or that I've dissociated and I've kind of checked out and that's not good either. I want to be present and I want to feel everything and I want to have the tools to control the intensity of what I feel in the moment so that I can perform the best. That's, oh man, that jogs a lot of memory for me. So I'm thinking back to, I mean, we blamed head injuries for my early exit from college hockey. Um, and it was club. So it wasn't anything like that serious. It was serious enough that you had to be prepared and do a good job and work, you know, it was demanding. But I remember where the butterflies would be there before games. And I was like, I kind of actually enjoy this thing. I'm ready to go. Like keep it right here, right here, right here. And I could play around with like that. Here's I'm going to ramp up here, warm up. So I'm going to calm down. And then we get up. I had like a system that I don't even know if I was aware of, but there was that butterfly. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking ready to roll. Let's do this thing. Let's go. Yeah. And then as the life kind of started changing, the head injuries started to happen a little bit more. Like th- there was something to the head injuries. I don't think that it was a For mistake, sure. but is yeah. I don't know if they were as significant as we think they were. However, you label head injury, um, they're all significant. But um, yeah. I remember now that I'm looking back on it, I'm having this kind of I don't know, epiphany mm-hmm. is the right word, but the thought process of like it no longer was anxiety or excitement or nervousness. It was fear. It became, I don't want to be the one making the mistake and nobody wants to make a mistake. There's always that little bit of like, be good, be good, be good. Don't make a mistake. Yeah. But a lot of times I can move through that. And then in my playing time started coming down with injuries and then it became, what if I get really seriously hurt? What if it's, when's the next hit going to be the thing? And I remember turning strictly to fear. And I still get that when I go play with friends where I'm like, it just takes one asshole on the ice in a beer league on a Friday night to just decide he wants to kill me. And he just lines me up. Now, lots of things going into that, but I also think back to now, like if you put me in front of a hundred people, I I mean, I've taught like classes in gym. I have, I get a little bit anxious. Like, all right, I'm ready to roll. I'm I'm here. I'm excited about this. But if you put this camera, like this is fine. The conversation with you and I is fine. If I take this phone, and I got to talk to an empty soul on the camera. It's just my face looking back at me for Instagram or something out. <laughs> I am. So, and it's hilarious because my wife could be any different. You put her in front of a group of people and she's like, Mm-mm, don't like this at all. But the camera with that, she's good to go. And I'm like, there's so much. And that comes back to like the thoughts become things, the self-fulfilling prophecies, the not good enough. That's fear for me rather than like, 
nervousness or anything like it's it's self-sabotage really like you're not good enough and control we like to feel control what can we control what can't we control yeah it's it's so funny i don't like i love being in front of people i love it uh just like whatever once i'm there like let's let's go for it but um I've heard you talk about this too, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. We've had this experience a little bit in our past, my family and, and my wife here. Um, EMDR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, your thoughts about that, although I kind of know it, but the kind of the, the why behind it and, and why your thoughts are what they are. But um, just building into that, some better therapeutic practice. Obviously we're looking at regulation of, of nervous system, but there's so much coming out with different drugs. And I don't mean antidepressants and all those things. I, I don't, uh, it's not a road I want to get down to. I don't, if you need them, I guess you need them. But, but the plant medicine and the ketamine. The psychedelics, the, the weeds, yeah. the, all these things. Like yeah. what is, what is um, significance of all these things and best practice? Obviously it probably is the answer is it, it depends, but um, sure. I'll let you roll with this. <laughs> Okay, where to start with that? So where to start with that is I form an opinion. I mean, I went into SRT after researching everything else and comparing it with the science of, of the brain, the neuroscience, all the, the, the theories that went into it. SRT took the best of everything and made it into one. So I see a lot of therapists that have trainings in 10 different modalities, and then they just kind of that's crazy. If you don't need that many, um, just, I mean, this was one, this was one that was the foundation of everything else and use the best of everything else. And I, it was all I needed. Um, If there's a better one that comes out, I'm still open to looking into it because everything's evolving. So what I know right now is only what I know right now. And it doesn't mean it's accurate or completely um, current because I don't have a ton of time right now to research everything. But this is what I know to be true in this moment. What I'm interested in is whatever name something has, I want to see what's happening with the nervous system. And by that, I'm looking at, is it taking you into high sympathetic arousal? Is it taking you into a range outside of what is a tolerated, what they call it, the the healing window or the vortex or the window. Everybody's got a name for it. I kind of get tired of all this. Seriously, I'm just like, are you going out of range or not? Um, (laughs) If you're taking a psychedelic, what's happening in your body? If you look at their actual body, it's responding as if it's a poison. And people are spiritualizing it or romanticizing it. And they're like, oh, it's the purge you're vomiting a poison that side effect is a hallucinating experience. I'm not saying that you can't experience some kind of spiritual transformation in that state. I'm saying that's not a normal state for the brain to be in. And most neurologists will recommend that you leave the brain alone because we don't have a lot of control over how it responds to any of these substances. Um, And it's so variable and and the brain is quick to injure and slow to heal. So I always say, be very careful what you do with your head, with your brain, with any substances, because we just don't know enough. We just do know enough that it takes a long time to heal if we've caused injury. If something's causing your body to respond with dilated pupils, increased respiration, you're vomiting, you have diarrhea, you're sweating, those are the pathways Um, that the body uses to detox bad things. It's trying to get something out. It's trying to excrete it out. To me, that's not a healthy state to be in. 
I work with a lot of people that have had medical trauma, poisonings, near-death experiences. We have to treat that as trauma and work with that. So if that's being used in a clinical setting and there are benefits for people that haven't found any other way and that they deserve to feel better, if this is a way to get them there in a small percentage of cases, I'm all for it. But I think that they need somebody like me on the other end to also treat the trauma of the experience as well, because that's traumatic to the nervous system. Usually what happens is we're focused on symptoms. Some of these things are measured as far as symptom reduction in immediate, but we don't have long-term results on what that shows for overall brain health, or if it's going to increase like antidepressants, increase risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. What do these other things do long-term? How long does this last? We have to keep giving people ketamine to help them stay out of depression. There's so many questions that I haven't seen the answers for yet before I can endorse any of these. What I do know is they cause a high fight, flight, or freeze response in the nervous system. And the symptom reduction is typically going to be from dissociation. So dissociation is we are in high sympathetic, high activated state, and the brain cannot take anymore, and it's a shutoff valve. It's a protection me measure that kind of numbs us out, and it does, it feels better. EMDR has a lot of the similar principles of checking in with your body, having a resource, but you're following a light source or a sound pattern specifically to go back and forth until you're dissociated. Um, and then you have symptom relief. So it does look promising because it does look like there's symptom relief. And there's been modifications to EMDR that I'm not aware of, so I can't really speak on that. But I know in the beginning, the creators of SRT met with the creator of EMDR and they had to talk about the brain science behind it. And the creator of EMDR was like, I was out for a walk and I was having a traumatic memory and I noticed my eyes going back and forth. And then I got home and then noticed that that made me feel better. That's, that's a high activation uh, response from the reptilian brain too, which is where is their threat? This is how it scans for threat by the eyes. Visual is one of the biggest ways that we take in our environment to assess threat. So it also causes a ton of activation to do anything with your eyes. I had LASIK surgery, super activating to have anything going on with your eyes. But with the light beam, there are people that I'll explain it to or that they'll, somebody has explained it to them. And they freak out at the thought of it. The, the activation of the idea of that process is too much for them. And I see people all over the world over Skype that have been damaged by EMDR or they feel like they have been. Whatever they went to see that person for, they got so much worse or they had a psychotic experience that they need trauma therapy for the trauma therapy before we can work with the original trauma. And some people, there's so many people that say EMDR was the best thing ever. And I'm saying that's great. Long term, where else is that activation going in your body as far as chronic disease or illness or pain or other things? How long is it lasting for? But even if it was helpful, what if there's a better way? What if there's a better way that doesn't cause people to go through every trauma right through T0, the point of impact, the worst experiences of their life? What if there's a way to change the brain in a way that's not overwhelming and that doesn't cause that kind of 
um, interaction with the nervous system that lets people feel like they're more in control and actually changes their brains with new neural pathways rather than just numbing them the fuck out. What if there's a better way? That's the way that I work in, that I've seen success in. And it's not that all EMDR is bad. I would never do it and I would never recommend it to anybody I cared about because I found a better way and this is what I would recommend. So um, all the MDR therapists really dislike the fact that I'm very vocal about it because <laughs> they also feel like they're really helping people. I just want to see more. I want to see what their nervous systems and their overall health looks like long term because I, I know a lot of people that have had it and then now they have rheumatoid arthritis or they have an autoimmune condition or they have something else has popped up because if you don't clear that activation out of the nervous system, it's going to go deeper into the body somehow. That's what we theorize in this level of science. I can't prove it to be true. I just know that this is the only way that I would work. It worked for me and it works for everybody that I've worked with and I wouldn't work any other way. That's great. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, there. <laughs> um, if you got time, I'm ready to keep going on this thing. Um, I've had a couple of EMDR experiences. I know that my sister, I will believe my sister has, um, years ago, but, uh, and I know my wife had a, a more recent experience with it that we were like, mm, this isn't going to really work for us at this point. Yeah. It, way less helpful than helpful in the immediate reaction. Right. And I was like, well, does everything have to get worse to get better? Uh, some things probably, and doesn't sound like it from your stance, like it definitely I doesn't. So. I, you know, the nervous system doesn't heal in the same state it was injured in. So if something cannot be overwhelming, if there's a gentler approach, we build resilience in like through resistance of times, but we still need the recovery. We still need the rest. And so the healing is optimal if you can attack it from a place of rest rather than trying to go through the same space it was injured in and think that you can you can rewire those connections every time you go through that experience in your thoughts or in your speech you're taking that what has um fired together and wired together in the beginning and you're just firing and wiring it deeper and deeper like you said with the grooves even more every time so why not take a backdoor approach? Why not do a different approach? Why not create new neural pathways completely separate from the traumatic ones to train the brain to function differently? Hmm. That's great. Uh, is, uh, oh man, is there a normal baseline? Like, does everybody have their normal baseline? I imagine it's just different for everybody, but when we're talking about the nervous system's activation level, but yep. does everybody have that baseline? And it's just a matter of the cup's too full or not enough. And then I'm going to also parlay this into kids today or even myself as a kid or even myself today, but improving that activation level in its relationship to sports and like, or community mm -hmm. maybe, but sports, the spring conditioning was called sports, but like, what does your community do for these activation levels up and down or that baseline of like well you know if if i come home from work and my cup's full i just haven't moved through i've made room and i my wife says something to me and i fire off yep it's not a matter of like um out to lunch it's just a matter of like yeah shit's too full right now and, and that was the trigger right so is there a way yeah. that community or sports would affect this and is there that right like baseline for everybody that you know if it, concussion testing they do like 
mm. preseason testing and then you get hit your head and they go back to this testing and that's one way of saying like we are healed the nervous system is healed in this stance right right I'm well i mean <clears throat> there's a debate on whether heart rate variability is accurate because it's it's also very individual um i think it's great to use those kind of measurements just to track where you start and when you, where you finish as you do some of this work. Um, I haven't delved enough into it, but that's one of the things I do have a heart math system that I've always wanted to, you know, take more time and explore the heart rate variability piece of it. A lot of it is just of when you feel when you like, if we're in a session together and we find a baseline and we're going to integrate that with what do you notice in your, in your physical body, that creates a new neural pathway. The more we do that, you become familiar with, oh, this is my baseline. The less room you have in your cup, the higher your baseline, the more room you have in your cup, the lower your baseline. So doing this kind of work, it's, the goal isn't to have an empty cup. We can't really empty it. I mean, once we're born, it's already started to fill. So the goal is if you have an, enough room in your cup, you can deal with most of what's going on in life. When, it's get, when it gets too full, I mean, we often think of a full cup as being symptoms. Symptoms happen when the cup is overflowing. So we can feel the pressure and still operate within a full cup, but it's the tipping point of one more drop and then shit starts to go crazy that it's like, okay, now I'm completely dysregulated. But we can always lower the baseline by just learning how to empty the cup. And a lot of that is through <clears throat> not just this kind of session work, but and, and getting rid of anything that's kind of filling it up like old trauma that's still kind of holding in there but it's you know lifestyle support too um which feeds into that into into the sport and the community thing community is really important as far as not feeling alone in the world but you have to be selective with your community so that you're getting the right support from them otherwise they can fill your cup as much as they can empty it so that part is is um, important to be aware of always, like the company that you keep. But with sports, <clears throat> there, I don't think there's anybody that I don't recommend do some kind of, not just exercise, because exercise can become part of routine. And it doesn't necessarily, once you start and you're in the routine, you're not challenging yourself anymore. But as a challenge, a regular sports challenge for your body does translate into a resource that you can use for your mind. So um, in that respect, I would say um, that definitely using different parts of your life where you can push yourself and you can challenge can increase your resiliency across the board and it can reduce, it can give you more resources to help you lower your own baseline. And I mean, sports performance, kind of pre-performance, you really want to know what your baseline is so that you can optimize that for whatever you're your challenges, especially if it's competition. That's great. We, we would talk about that in our, our world of like stress progress, right? Like just minimum, yeah. minimum effective dose, <laughs> ramp it up, bring it right back down and then just kind of let it recover and grow from there. Um, that's, that's really cool. There's, there's so many parallels there. Um, yeah. Is there a level of, I mean, I, I think I can answer this now. I think I've got enough information, but like that bandwidth, that, that activation level, can mm -hmm. it shrink? So we work up to, this level of like, we can handle this large trauma. We have trained, we've gone through all these things. We've made enough space. The cup has been in, it's in a, at a level of like, we can handle some big stuff. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's buds of seals or, you know, some kind of special for whatever it may be. 
Yeah. We reach this capacity. You become an athlete, and this capacity is just monstrous. We stop competing. Mm. Or does it shrink? And if it does shrink, are we always? Do we always have that ability to go back out to that edge, or is this something that would have to be retrained? Like you stop. I've stopped playing hockey. My competitiveness, for a lot of reasons, mostly probably just psychological. Of like I don't want to be feared. I don't want to have this injury or whatever. But yeah. I'm starting to get back into the feeling confident enough to feel competitive and go, I'll take that on. Is that something that I can get back up to without the training and just going, well, I've had it before. I know how to navigate that. Or is that something that you have to go through and it's kind of a novel thing again? I don't even know if that makes sense. I mean, it's like muscle memory. It's the same. Like you, it'll be familiar and then you you kind of retrain it, you train into it and then you can expand it. Um, I mean, so with activation, you can have a, a really full cup and feel that's where the awareness comes in. You can have a full cup and still not really be aware. A lot of people aren't aware how full their cup is, which is why one minor fender bender or one little fall or one injury or one more conk on the head. And all of a sudden it's like, what the fuck? I can't even, I went through all these big things and was fine. And now I can't recover from this one. And there's a ton of guilt and shame attached to that because it seems like it should be manageable. There's a weakness about it. We can never judge another person's traumatic response because we don't know what was in their container at the time. So it's never about the event. It's what's already in the system at the time. And it's, it's sense of resiliency already. So that's one of the biggest myths about trauma is that, well, if it's a big trauma, then your recovery is going to look like this. And this is the process we're going to take you on. Sometimes it's the most minor thing, but it was the last thing in that flipped the switch. And then you have all these symptoms. So then we work from this moment and then work our way back um, to then empty it. So once you've experienced resilience and capacity, you can always go back and get it more. But I mean, it's, it can be a bit of an illusion too, because we talked about like military and the SEALs, their training is traumatic. Their training is so traumatic that it's, it's um, really about dissociating. It's, it's about willpower, but it's also about dissociating so that you can just perform with muscle memory um, without, you know, some of the fear and those other triggers that would get in the way of most people. They, most people or a majority of people that go into a first responder type of role, and I see this with a lot of firefighters I work with, but there's something that happened in their childhood that makes them want to be a rescuer. So there's usually a significant amount of activation already cooking, which is why they want to go into that. And they, they like the punishment in a sense of what that is, but there's also some kind of connection to this happened and I felt weak and empowered. So I'm going to be strong and robust and the most powerful by going this route, I'm going to save other people or I'm going to be bigger than life itself by going this route. And they're able to do so much that we often think that they're super resilient. They typically have pretty big containers, but often what happens is you see deficiency outside of their job. So they can be a SEAL on, and they can go on missions, they can do the training, they can be a firefighter, they can do their jobs exceptionally well because they've been trained with the switch. They come back home and they often have two or three failed marriages. They have uh, trouble connecting with their kids. They have issues with um, insomnia and PTSD and flashbacks and all those things as soon as they're not working 
because their nervous system still, even though they perform so well, which is the illusion, the nervous system isn't healthy enough that it knows how to be in rest without being really uncomfortable. So it's like you need the push. You need the push to build resilience, but you need to be able to move into rest to really know if your nervous system is healthy. Because if you can come into rest without freaking out with and still have relationships and still have like the robustness of your entire life that you can handle, that's health. Um, but I think for a lot of people and a lot of men that are the type A entrepreneurs, also the first responders, there is that driving personality and there's an illusion that, well, look, I have it all together out here. I just can't be with my own thoughts and I can't be with my partner and I can't be away from pills or porn or beer or something because this feels too raw when I'm sitting by myself with it and not working it. Wow. That's uh so I've had this thought process for a little while. I've, I've thought about like, what is it that I, I even at 30, before I kind of looked into a little bit more of what it would mean to go in, I thought mm -hmm. like, I'd want to go into something specialty, like, you know, like the special forces, just maybe it's an ego thing. I don't know. But now you, you're talking about this and I'm thinking back to hockey and I loved playing in pain. I love taking the first shift and putting myself in a position to just get hit. Like I, I wanted to make a big hit or get, take a huge hit. And it just didn't matter. And I played injured. I don't know if I ever had a healthy season from the time that it like really mattered when I was playing. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the surgery side of things. I liked the rehab as much as I hated the rehab. I liked going through pain because it was like, it was, it's not about me. It's bigger than me, but this is how I feel attached. But then you start looking at some of the other things in my life of like, you know, eating habits, drinking, mm -hmm. smoking, just personal habits that I've taken on. And, and as I, now I've dived, dove in, dive, dove, I've gotten deeper into the ideas of like, why do you do that? I haven't fixed it all entirely, but there's been yeah. some things where I look and go, that's easy. Just fix it. And then, you know, a year later it comes back a little bit more. Um, but it's weird because there is that, like, I don't know what happened to me, but like, I've always been like that. Put me in front, put me in front as much as my insecurities go. Yeah. He'd be at the back. I don't want to be noticed, but there's some kind of, I loved playing through pain. I loved it. The, the more it hurt, the like the deeper, oh my God, I'm like, I'm like getting this adrenaline rush. I'm like, let's roll. So, That's but look so at fascinating how, look to at me. how um, young people become addicted to cutting. It's the, if you're dissociated, if you're, or you're in pain or like emotional pain, or you're just needing an endorphin or a dopamine high, that's what the addiction is. The, it's a chemical addiction through physical activity. The, um, the act of cutting gives them immediate presence and immediate, I'm alive, even though it sucks, even though it's detrimental, right. even though it's really bad, it burns um, out those centers in the brain and then we need more and more and more because the dopamine receptors have become numbed out. And our society is doing that, um, through our devices, through the activity and the and the the things that our kids are are having come in their brains way too early, things we weren't designed for. So some of our resilience is debilitated just because of the society we live in. But then there is that extra thing, which is where can I get a rush? We're conditioned for reward. If we didn't find it in our life somewhere, where can I find it? We get it. We get one hit of that dopamine. I mean, I was an athlete. I totally get what you're talking about. We want more of it at all costs, whatever it takes. And it's a lifetime setup of chasing the next high 
in ways that we framed as being healthy or competitive or, you know, we, we use different words to make them sit better. It's, it's so fascinating because I, obviously as I start pulling away from like becoming aware of all these things, it, it is, I haven't figured out how to navigate it entirely for myself, but it's way easier to spot with others where you're like, dude, we know yeah. what we're doing. Yep. It's now, okay. I thought I was getting ready to wrap this thing up with us, but I, the dopamine side of things, can that be really retrained? You've got, um, obviously there's addictive behaviors to a lot of things, but just the behavior itself of, of cutting, I don't, you know, the dopamine, you can just think about cutting and dopamine release. And it's not even necessarily the act. It's the thought that releases that chemical and you're like sweet food for me. Like I could think about pizza and I'm like sailed all out. This is, yeah. If I don't have pizza in the next 24 hours, this isn't going to be good. But the other side was like, maybe it's growth. Can you retrain mm -hmm. that? Can you like, is there a desensitization to it? Um, that allows you to, is that a baseline thing that you can kind of reactivate and go back into reassessing? I don't even know the right words there, but. I, I think I'm on board with some of the theories around addiction where you replace one addiction with a, a healthier addiction. So I think uh, we often think, well, I don't want to, I don't want to use distraction to get through something or to cope, but actually distraction is a really positive way to retrain the brain to get it out of the fixation of whatever it's on. And to understand that those chemicals aren't bad, but if you've burnt them out and you're constantly seeking a high, then you need to do some, some regrouping there. So, um, and your point is so valid, which is Anybody that's come in, and I don't work with active addiction, I'll work with somebody after they've done um, like 90 meetings in 90 days. After that, then I'll work with them because the substances and that um, really diminishes a lot of the work and the success rate is much lower. So, but to your point, I'll have somebody that um, after a surgery was on um, morphine um, and then they had trouble getting off morphine, which is, a, I mean, the opioid problem is huge. Huge. So she was in session and we talked about, you know, when she notices that the morphine starts to kick in and impact her, like reduce her pain levels. As she talked about kind of the very first sensation that she feels when she would have taken one of her pills, her brain did have the memory of and release natural painkillers. And in that moment, within seconds, faster than the pill would work, her pain level started to decrease. I can do the same thing with people that are like, oh, I'm addicted to cannabis. Well, how, what's the first thing you notice about, you know, getting high? And they'll tell me what that, that experience is. And a good therapist is a master interrupter. So you know when to interrupt. And then you're like, what do you notice right now? Well, I'm feeling like all the benefits of the cannabis without the, the physical dependency on it. So you can, you can still get what you need from your own system. Every receptor in the brain was created like a lock and key to, to be the lock for something that we already make. So the external substance use is not necessary and we can start working with people that are, are coming off of some of those things with some of those um, thought patterns. There's a risk, of course, with when you think of it, then you want to do it with a behavior. So that's where you have to replace the behavior and Again, I don't work in the area of behavioral therapy for addiction work, but it's important to know that what you want to create in your mind, you can if, as you think it. So there is that responsiveness to it. 
the awareness of I'm seeking a dopamine high by this activity, even just the awareness is half the work. Once you're aware, you start to make changes yourself. Things, the impact of it is different. The power of it is different because if you've intellectualized an addiction, it's super boring at that point. And then you find a different challenge to funnel into. You just want healthy dopamine and healthy endorphins and not to hurt yourself all the time. And you know, the older you get, the more you cut, you're, you're able to settle into not chasing as much. It's harder when you're younger because especially as a young man, you're wired to hunt, gather, go for the big kill because that's, your role in society is a hunter-gatherer biological. That's sure. you know, your hormones are created that way. So for men, um, I think the addiction piece is harder if they're not doing the right kind of workouts too. Young men need to be doing some pretty aggressive, intense workouts because you're not out there killing animals, or most aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, I mean, a lot of that is hormone optimization. If you're optimizing your hormones at there are different times of your life doing different things. If you're doing this kind of work, you have less need for the hit. But if you need it, you can find other ways to get it. And some of it is just knowing yourself. Like I know I'm a highly competitive person. I don't want to not be. If I wanted to not be competitive, I would change. I would decide I would be something else because you can rewire your brain, any part of it at any, at any point in your life for the rest of your life. So to that answer, yes, you can change anything these things I don't want to change. So I find new things to be competitive with. So recently I picked up tennis for the first time ever. Now I love tennis and I'm not good at it, but you have to start as a beginner. Um, Starting as a beginner is really good for the brain um, at every stage of life. So um, you should always have a bucket list of things that you've never done before. You always want to try and then do them regularly because you go through that humility of being a beginner, that uncomfortableness that builds resilience, and then you actually grow your brain as you learn something new. If it's something that feeds something that is part of a spirit that you want to keep, like competition, when I get a good hit and or I win a tennis match, I'm like on fire, and I'm on fire for the rest of my life, for the rest of that day or the next two days or whatever. So it's about using distraction and manipulating variables to get you into the state that you want for the rest of your life. And you just choose different parts of your life to be able to do that. But it's so multifaceted that my life feels like a constant daily experiment. Hmm, I don't like the state that I feel right now. How do I want to get out of it? I'll try this. I'll try that. Like everything now is an experiment about how do I want to mold my brain this week, this year. And that kind of awareness and introspection, I think, is way more valuable than anything going into your past to dig up. I already know why I am the way that I am. I'm going to keep the parts that I adore, and I'm going to pick new ones that I want to build in. And then every day is this adventure of, it's like the choose your own adventure books. Do I want to go this way or that way? So I'm going to try things until I feel the way I want to feel until I feel like I'm growing my brain into the way I want so that I can get more of what I want out of life and not feel ashamed about it, but also keep my brain moving. I, I, my life model right now. <laughs> I mean, like I could, I have so many rabbit holes. I want to jump down right now, but I'm going to respect you. Tom. I'm going to start wrapping this up, but you had said something. Okay. I have something written down here about like animal brains and you'd say like a great therapist is the master interrupter. And I, I always joked that like, we're just like dogs, right? Like the dog's chewing on something, you like bop them on the nose. Like some people just 
Stop it. Grab them, and you're like, no, that they don't know what you're saying to them. You need a, you need yeah. a, on the muzzle, like, bam, you know, like do something where you're like, yeah. and, and same thing with people. You're like, I think it's in the office in one of the episodes where they're talking, and it's just like, ah, and they don't let them finish the thought. And you're like, what? And yeah. Distract you. Remember what we were talking about? That's hilarious. But we it's like kind of can be as dumb as like animal, where it's just like, all right, fight recover fight like it doesn't have to we kind of convolute this whole thing we tell the same story as a habit over and over and over again and it doesn't help us grow it keeps us where we don't want to be so if you if you're with a good therapist they won't let you keep telling the same story they will interrupt you and it offends people but it's necessary no we don't want this brain pathway so i'm not going to let you be the dog that runs me to the park i'm in control of this session in that this is not healthy for your brain, so I don't want you to go out of range. And it's opposite of this client-centered approach, which is, you know, the client knows best and you just let them run and you just reflectively listen. I want to be way more effective than that. If they want a reflective listener, I want them to find a best friend. I'm not that best friend. I want to help the, interrupt the bad patterns in their brain or the ones that aren't working for them anymore and build a new one so that they can go off and live their life and and be healthy and not repeat the same things. People come to therapy because they're stuck and you can't get unstuck by just repeating the same thing just to somebody new. It's incredible. This is, this is my head is exploding right now. I have so many things. Um, cool. And in starting to wrap this up, uh, okay. someone's working with therapists. Obviously the easy thing is if you're not working with therapists, uh, you know, reach out to you, whatever, we'll get into this, but someone's working with a therapist that's kind of more in the CBT. They feel kind of stuck, whatever. What's, mm -hmm. what's the pivot there? What, like, I think one of the biggest fears of going to therapy is getting out of therapy. And how do you tell somebody like, this isn't working. It's a breaking up. Like, how do you tell somebody this isn't working? Thank you. But like, nobody wants to make someone feel like shit or like at the end of the day, someone that's conscious of it just goes, it just wasn't a match. Like it's not a big deal. But like, what's the pivot there? Yeah. You know, like how do people make that? Because they're so used to the CBT. Mm -hmm. or whatever type of therapy and then they come into someone that's doing more of the srt style where it's like oh no i'm not your best friend we are here to do business and we're going to make this thing work mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's still wrapped in so much empathy but it's not the ah kind of empathy <laughs> it's totally different right i'm not going to meet you where you feel like you're a victim i'm going to resonate with the experience that was hard for you but the goal is really to move you out of that so I think you can go to your therapist and say, I just want to try something new. And you know, you can have a wrap up session. Some people just don't rebook. Um, this hasn't been for everybody. There's people that are like, I don't want to sense into my physical body. I want, I want a list. I want homework. I want to think more I, or I want to have more feelings. I want to come here and cry a lot. Well, I don't work that way and I'm not going to work that way. And there's, everybody else that will maybe work that way or a, a whole bunch. And so we're not at the right fit. So I think you can say, I want to try something new that I've learned about. And SRT isn't um, wildly, widely available because it's a nonprofit that's created up here in Canada and they train everybody individually. They screen people, they make you do your own work to make sure that you're not going to do harm or project onto others. So it's so selective and specific because they really wanted the quality to be kind and effective and um, that was really important to them so it's not mass trained but there are others that are similar like somatic experience which was created by peter levine 
a lot of his theory is incorporated into SRT and there's more of those type of therapists out there, I would recommend that um, or any kind of mind-body connected, non-overwhelming, non-cathartic kind of approach because they have a whole bunch of different names. So a lot of that will just be looking at what's in your area and, and doing some research on that. I do recommend against EMDR and I do recommend against CBT because there are these other options that incorporate the best of those into one that isn't as overwhelming and I think is more effective faster. But I think just being able to say, I just want to try something new. You can always go back to your therapist. Sure. Yeah, that's great. It's um, been, been in that situation a couple of times, but you, you said something about like feeling into the body and the homework. Like I'm, I'm always like, can I get both? Cause I, I do yeah. it myself where I'm like, just, you know, even if I'm driving, I feel worked out. I'm like, feel your ass in the chair feel your breathing, like focus yeah. on in, focus on out. Like, where does it feel in your yeah. body? Oh, it's in my shoulder. I don't know. Okay. What the hell does that mean? It doesn't matter. You just feel it. And that's, that's the awareness of regulation, I guess, uh, I would imagine. But, um, this has been so awesome for me. Um, before my last real question comes up, where can people find you and <laughs> selfishly, maybe for anybody that's listening, my mom and aunt, whoever knows, um, do you do virtual clients? I only do virtual clients. Oh, right look now. at that. All, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't have a, um, a huge availability for a lot of, of people in my practice because I'm moving more into consulting work and some of the, the sprint work that I was talking about. But I still do have some availability. But people can reach me on my website, which is taradonmiller.com. And I am going to be launching a new one in the next month called braincoach.co. So that'll be more for entrepreneurial. Um, I'd really like to see workplaces start to build resilience into their corporate culture uh, because that's doing a lot of damage to people on the spot and costing companies a lot of money. So that's kind of my next adventure into um, where are a lot of people spending their time that's not healthy and where could we make this better for them? So not just that they're better employees, for the company, but so that they're better humans in their own lives. So cool. That's so cool. I, well, I look forward to seeing that uh, new, new venture set out. Um, I'm kind of stepping into that right now on my own and, and trying to go virtual and everything like that with my, my business. And, um, so and I, I have a book, I have a book that I hope will be coming out by the end of the year. Awesome. Well, when it does, uh, please let me know. I'll make sure I'll, I'll push it out. You've, you've been awesome. This is so awesome. Um, my last question I ask this to everybody in some form. Um, you're on your deathbed, you're at the road. Um, how do you know it was a life well done? Oh my gosh, that's a <laughs> tough one. I mean, part of it is I already, I have had some pinnacle sessions that were the best sessions of my life where at the end of it, um, especially with postpartum depression, I, uh, with clients with that, where I went, I could quit now and, that's good enough because it was so meaningful and what it has done for that mom and more importantly for the baby for their life it was almost spiritual as far as the experience um i would say my life at any point from this point on on my deathbed i have taken some horrific experiences some major challenges um in my personal life and my professional life 
and I have found a way to make meaning of it and transform it to not just be better and stronger as in my own self and, and raising strong kids and, and this family, but I've also helped other people do the same because of that. So I found a way to make meaning out of traumatic experience and so that it wasn't for nothing, so that life was more than surviving. It was about really overcoming and being defiant enough to push back and say, this is my fucking right and this is how I'm gonna end it. Light drop right there. <laughs> How sweet was that? Well, Tara, thank you so much. This is uh, this has been more than I could ever imagine. Uh, you are you're awesome. You're full of knowledge. Uh, selfishly, I'm going to be reaching out to you because uh, I have lots of questions about my my path and which way to go. But um, talking to you has made me just kind of like light up and go like, there is a way to do the things you want to do without doing them the way that they say you have to do them. It's it. I've always been kind of like, I'm going to, what are the rules? Let me function within them. But like, how do I kind of push the boundary a little bit? And like, yes. a little bit I'm a little bit different as much as I'm normal. I fit in, but like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel like you have to think about this way. So thank yeah. you for um, your time. Thank you for your knowledge and experience. This is, this has been so awesome. You're so welcome. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs>